All right, I'm all wired up now. Here we go. Let me uh, just share with you some thoughts before we get into our lesson tonight. This is usually about the time when I get into a long, series sermon like this, especially one of this flavor like we did even last fall. I might start saying, what's the use? This is tedious and it's bothersome to me. I don't like studying for it. I don't like reading this stuff. I don't even like sharing this stuff. I don't like it even coming across my, my lips. I would rather not even say these things. But then I'm reminded that truth matters. And weekly in Fountain Hills, I'm confronted with the fact that truth is not a major, a major importance in many people's lives that, that it should be, even in the place of teachers and preachers. And so, though this becomes tedious for me, and I don't want to, I don't, I don't say that so you say, oh boy, you know, poor pastor. It's not that. It, it, it is really, um, I really want the church to have discernment. I fear the church does not have it. And uh, why does truth matter? Because people's eternity rests upon these things. And we've looked at a lot of information, and you've, you've heard and you've read, and all of it, I've tried to give you documentation on first-person documentation from these things. These, these, are, these are not just minor differences uh, from, from a denominational perspective. We have those all the time. We have other denominations that are Christ-loving, Christ-serving, uh, Christ-honoring denominations that we may not see on minor things exactly the same thing. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about the, the, the complete neglect and, and even intentional uh, teaching that which is false and contrary to the gospel as being the truth and offering people a Jesus that the Bible knows nothing about. And a salvation that's not even spoken of in the scripture. Truth does matter. We know God because of the truth that's given us in the word of God. Each of you came to God or came to Jesus because, because of the word of God. You say, I want you to just think about that. You came to Jesus because of the word of God. Whether someone loves you enough to meet you one-on-one and tell you about that, or maybe you were in a service, maybe you were in a class, maybe, maybe your parents, maybe grandparents... If they shared the truth with you, they shared the truth that's found in the Word of God. And when that truth was shared with you, the Holy Spirit took that truth and revealed that truth to you as being eternal truth. You put your faith and your trust in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life based upon truth. Unfortunately, there are, there's a lot of decisionism, I don't even know if that's a word, but I'll just use it anyway, uh, going on where, where people are, are making, are giving responses to to this kind of doctrine that we're talking about here, and they think that they're right with God. How can you be right with God when you have a Jesus that had to be born again? How can you have a, be right with God when you have a Jesus that turned into the devil on the cross? And we, all those things we've talked about. Truth does matter. Now tonight we're going to talk about an area that really, uh, some, even some Christians that are not involved in some have some problem with, and that has to do with wealth. Wealth and want. What are the promises that are given to us in the Scripture? Should a Christian ever be in want? Could God ever possibly use want in the life of His child to glorify Himself? Or is God only glorified when His children prosper uh, financially? How is God glorified in our life? And much of the, much of the essence of the health, wealth, prosperity doctrine, why it's even called a prosperity doctrine, is a teaching that two major things. We've already talked about the under, 
pretty much what we've done so far is talk about the underpinning of all the, all the, what I would call the doctrine of demons that are underneath this. Now, now we're going to get to the root issue. That is health and wealth. Today we're going to talk about wealth. Next week we're going to talk about health. And in some people's mind, it's impossible to believe that God could be glorified through someone who has nothing. Or that God could possibly be glorified through any infirmity that we might have. That God is only glorified when his people are prosperous. That is, that they have wealth that's far above. And they'll take some scriptures and take them out of, the, out of context and say stuff like, God wants you to be the head, not the tail. And, 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 and John, first, uh, first John epistle where it says, I pray that God would most of all prosper you. And they'll use that as, as a prosperity uh, uh, teaching and stuff. We belong, let me just lay this foundation for where I'm coming from tonight. We belong to God. And if I belong to God, then He possesses me. I know we always have to say, I possess Him. No, actually, He possesses me. I'm His. The Bible says I was bought with a price. I belong to Him. If that's true, then there's some other things that are true also. If God would choose to use me or to use you, to glorify himself in a way that's contrary to what the world says brings glory to God. Who are we to tell him he can't do that? If he brings poverty in your life and through that poverty he uses that poverty to glorify himself, you're rich beyond compare. (laughs) If he brings sickness into your life or allows sickness to come in your life and he chooses to glorify himself through that sickness, that's his business also. It goes back to what I tried to share with you this morning in our, in our morning worship service. It's God. God needs to be the center of everything. And the essence of prosperity theology or health and wealth theology is man is at the center of everything. And man can have everything he wants. And it's only when we have what we want that God can fully be glorified. There's some statements that are just... Just terrible statements of how would, why would God want to use some old poor beggar, you know, and, and why would God want to use some disease-ridden body? He wants to give you health and wealth and, and prove himself to be God. And yet sometimes don't we pray that way ourselves? Lord, if you'll just bring a great healing into this person's life, certainly your name would be glorified more when people hear the great healing you did than for them to continue to go through this. We try to tell God those things. Here's what I know. God is in control. Okay? And we need to remember that. And God knows how to use me and he knows how to use you and our life experiences to glorify himself. And I really believe he's looking for people who are available to him to say, God, you're God and we're not. And we are available to you to use any way that you want. I want to give you a passage of scripture for you, a couple of them for you to consider as we begin tonight. First of all, Psalm 119.72. Psalm 119, verse 72 and next, next week we'll look at 71, because these two really tie... Well, I'm just going to read both of them to you, because they really tie into this next two weeks. And here's what it said. Verse 71 says, It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. It's an incredible statement. Next statement. The law of your mouth is better to me than a thousand coins of gold and silver. The psalmist had the right approach to what was really valuable. It's always interesting to me how we value things. Gold, silver, 
And it's nice to have those things. I'm not going to say that it's not. And we're grateful to God when he provides those things in our life. But in, in, in proper perspective, I remind you that gold is what it, I put it, I would like to, gold is asphalt in heaven. It's what, it's what you walk on. Okay? And we're going to keep that in perspective. You're not going to take any of it with you. Anything, again, I said it this morning, anything that God pours in our life, he pours in our life that, and he blesses us with that we might be a blessing to others. But it could possibly be that God may take some things out of your life so that we might learn to rely upon him. That's what the psalmist says. Look with me also at Luke chapter 12 and verse 15. And I don't know if I gave this one to you, Kathy, but she can catch up to me. Luke chapter 12, verse 15. And here's what Jesus says. And he said to them, Take heed and beware of covetousness. Take heed and beware of covetousness. Now some translation will say all covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things that he possesses. What a wonderful passage. Bless you. They do not exist in the things that we possess. Now, these are biblical truths, what the psalmist shared with us, and now the very words of Jesus recorded for us by by Luke. And Jesus himself says, your life does not consist of the things that you possess. So beware of all covetousness. What's it mean to covet? It is to want. And it, it, it is to want to the extent that it consumes you. You see somebody else who has something, who owns something, and you, your, your, your waking and your sleeping hours consist of th- wishing that you had that also. God has called us to a place of contentment. Where's our contentment found if we're walking as we ought to walk? It's found in Christ Jesus himself. Well, the prosperity teachers would want us to believe that our understanding of who we are as individuals has more to do with the culture we find ourselves in than any, what I would say, is biblical truth. There is the Western mindset that we have. The more you have when you die, the better your life was. And the more you have while you're living, the better your life is. Now, we who went through Share Jesus Without Fear just heard of a man that pretty much had everything. Remember that? His testimony? Pretty much had everything. But his testimony was, when it got down to the, to the bottom line, he had nothing. Until someone shared with him the unsearchable riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he walked away from what everybody considered to be everything. You know, I'm sure he had friends that said, man, you're leaving all this? Yeah, I get. I, I don't know the man that well, but I'm just thinking, you know, maybe he's saying, yeah, praise God, I get to leave all this. Because it no longer consumes us. You see, as Christians, the one who should consume us is Jesus. He should consume us. He is life itself to us. He needs to be our every breath. And if we want to want something, we ought to want to hit Him more. We ought to desire Him more. Do we believe the Scripture when, we says, when He tells us that, you know, if we seek first Him and the kingdom of God, then all the other things shall be added unto us? That's not a promise, again, of prosperity from the world's perspective. It's a promise that He's going to take care of you. And He will take care of you how He chooses to take care of you. 
It is the, the, the height of arrogancy for a person to believe that they can manipulate God by their words, by their faith, by their prayers, and they can get what they, what they want, even in this world, by using some sort of uh, approach. And again, I would say a metaphysical approach to speak things, as, and they'll tell you, speak things as if they were and believe them and you will have them. Whatever. So, I've heard one guy say one time, if you have, if you have, let's see, what's a good, I'm going to bring it up to date. What's, a, what's one of those little cars, that little Honda thing? Little bitty thing. Huh? Yeah, well, I guess. I'll use a smart car. Okay. I'm just blowing my whole analogy here, but hey. But what I want to tell you, if you, Rob, if you have smart car faith, all you're ever going to get in life is a smart car. But Carrie, if you have Rolls Royce faith, then what you're going to get in life is Rolls Royce. And you're more faithful, you're more spiritual. Right? Yeah. You prove that you have more faith by the bigger your prayers are for the more things that you have. By the way, this has more to do with the Western culture than it has to do with anything else. We've turned our Christianity into a Western religion. You understand it didn't start as a Western religion. And we make our determination by what, what our society says, even what our free enterprise system says, it, it, it's proof that we are successful. We, we, and we attribute that even into our Christian faith. Now, I like free enterprise, i got to tell you. I hate it when the government manipulates and sticks their fingers in things they ought not to be sticking their fingers in. I like it as a system for our government, for our country. I'll just share that with you. I like it. Okay? But it's not our faith. It's not our Christianity. They call us to a cultural religion or cultural conformity. And and let me just break this down so you understand. The approach of the word faith teachers when it comes to prosperity is more rooted in the Western cultural mindset of greed than it is in the scriptures. I want to break this down to you and give you some examples tonight. And I, I give you some of these. And you, there, I hope everybody has copies of these. If not, I know Kathy has them on the screen behind me. The first one comes from a man by the name of Fred Price. His, actually, name, his name is Fred K.C. Price. And he's a, he's a pastor over in California. And here's, here's one of his quotes. He says, the whole point is I'm trying to get you to see to get you out of the malaise of thinking that Jesus and his disciples were poor and then relating that to you. Thinking that you, as a child of God, have to follow Jesus. The Bible says that he has left us an example that we should follow his steps. Now listen, this, he set this basis. Now look, here's his final statement. That's the reason why I drive a Rolls Royce. I'm following Jesus' steps. There, there's... Really, you see no disconnect there? Okay. Listen, church. Again, I work through this because it's not my point to show them wrong and, and us right. It's my point to, to shine the truth on these things. These guys have literally tens of thousands of people that listen to them and cheer them on week after week and apply these things while they watch their preachers driving around in Rolls Royces and living in mansions, and, and the preachers become the examples for what, what they themselves ought to be striving for. Unfortunately, for the most of them, 
They're always striving, but never arriving. But the one who's standing behind the pulpit, who's taken all their money, he is striving, and he has arrived. It, it, to me, it, it, it's really, I guess I can put, it's really a Christian Ponzi scheme. Where only the one at the top gets it. And maybe a few. But again, it, re- it returns to the thing where only, you know, at the bottom, get a little bit of sprinkle of this, a little sprinkle of that. Read the next one. Uh, Jesus had a nice house. A big house, big enough to have, a, uh, have company. Stay the night with him at the house. Let me show you his house. Go over to John, the first chapter, and I'll show you his house. Now, child of God, that's a house big enough to have company stay in in the night. So let's do this. Let's follow John Avancini's instruction, and let's go over to John chapter 1. Because remember, John said he would show us his house. Remember that. Not John the Apostle, John Avanzini. I'm quoting Starting with verse 35, chapter 1, said, Again, the next day Jesus stood with two, two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when, when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? He said, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard, who heard John speak and follow him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated to Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus looked at him, he said to him, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. Jonah, uh, you, you shall be called Cephas. Well, it goes on, on down. By the way, that's the house. In all of John chapter 1, there's no house. Love to show you the house. But John Avanzini asserts because Jesus talks to this guy, this guy, this guy, says, come see where I'm staying, that somehow Jesus has this mansion-type facility that's able to handle everybody who comes. So we get back to his quote here. By the way, I just took you to John chapter 1. All right? So he says, go over to John first chapter and I'll show you his, show you his house. And he can't show you what's not there. Now, child of God, that's a house big enough to have company to stay in in the night. There's his house. Goes on. John chapter 19 tells us that Jesus wore designer clothes. Okay. John chapter 19. Okay, John chapter 19. Let's look at John chapter 19, and uh, let's just start reading, uh, starting with uh, verse 23. This is after Pilate has the sign made up, King of the Jews, and, and here's what it says. It says, Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from, top, from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among, among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. All right, there you have.
have Jesus' designer clothing. Go back to the quote. John chapter 19 tells that Jesus wore designer clothes. Well, what else are you, you going to call it? Designer clothes? That's blasphemy. No, that's what we call them today. I mean, you didn't get the stuff he wore off the rack. It wasn't a one-size-fits-all deal. No, this was custom stuff. It was a kind of garment that kings and rich merchants wore. Kings and rich merchants wore that garment. This is incredible. You know why they call it, he called it designer clothes? Because as it says, the tunic was one piece woven from top to bottom. Actually, it was, it, it, was, it was just a tunic. There's nothing special about the tunic. Now, he'll go on to say in this, John Abazini will go on to say, see, why would, the, why would the soldiers waste their time casting lots for something that wasn't done designer clothes type thing? Trying to justify it. Because that's what they did. They cast lots for everything. Those who crucified the criminals took everything from the criminals. That's how they got what they got. This is not designer clothes. It was not uncommon for a man to wear a tunic next to his body in that way. Now, you're right. You know, when you read the Old Testament, you see there was a special tunic that was given to the high priest, but that's, that's, there's no indication that Jesus wore that tunic. Okay? But a tunic was just a garment that a man wore. And you'll remember when they crucified the man, what, how did they crucify him? Do you know? I, I, it may offend your senses to think that, that your Savior was hung up on a cross naked, but that's exactly how they crucified those men. They didn't have the cute little whatever. That's, that's specifically folded like it's a cross. and all. I mean, you, you get all this goofy stuff out there. They crucified them naked. They humiliated them. They treated them like the lowest of the low. And the Romans did this to tell everybody else, you don't mess with Rome. And before they did that, they would take his garment. They would take the criminal's garment. And that's what they would do. They would divide them up, whatever was there. And if there was a nice piece that that everybody wanted, what would they do? Or any piece that everybody wanted, they would cast lots for them, just like it says here. Nowhere does it say, designer clothes? Off the rack? Well, he's not done. Let's read on. He says, you don't think these apostles didn't walk around with money. In other words, you don't think they didn't walk around money, do you? I mean, they had money. I just thank God that I saw this and gave up the denominational line and got on God's line before I, before I starved me and my family to death. Go to Acts 24. Oh, Acts 24. Okay, John, we'll go there. You know what? Acts 24, talk, well, let me, let me just read what he says. I don't, we don't have time to read all that. We're, i got so much more. Here we go. You don't think there was money in Paul's life? Paul had the kind of money that people, the government officials, would, would block up justice to try to get a bribe, a bribe out of old Paul. Now, I'm going to ask you to read Acts chapter 24. If you find a bribe there from Paul to the officials, I, I would like for you to show me that. There is no house. There is no designer clothes. 
There is no bribe. But here you see men like this, just like their father, Satan, takes the Word of God, reads it. It does not say what they say it says, but they build a bunch of pretext upon this thing and everybody follows them and they don't read it for themselves. So now you have people running around, professing Christians, you know what? John chapter 1 says God, Jesus had this great big mansion. Alright? John, John chapter 19 tells that Jesus wore designer clothes, so that's why I'm going to wear designer clothes. John, Acts chapter 24 says that Paul was so rich he had money to bribe the officials and, and, and those. And not one of those things are true. This same man, John Avanzini, one time I heard him, I personally heard him say, say, uh, we know that Jesus was rich. And how we know that Jesus was rich is that they had a treasurer. Okay? And this treasurer was a thief. Now, there's nowhere in the Bible that said, first of all, that says Judas was a thief at all. It didn't say that about Judas. I mean, Judas had his problems, but let's not add to them. Okay? But his, 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 again, his assertion was that they, he had so much money that Judas was able to skim off the top all the time and they never knew that any was missing. It's not there. Truth. Truth. And when you start telling people these things and you're using Jesus as your example and the Apostle Paul as your example, and the examples that you use have nothing to do with truth at all, yet people do not have the discernment, nor even the will in many cases, to go read the Scripture for themselves to find out whether or not these things are true, then you have this this deception that goes on in the church. And you build upon deception, upon deception, until you get to a place where you where you start telling people that the way to be right with God, clearly in the Scripture, the good news, the Gospel is... You can be rich if you have faith. The good news of the gospel is you can be healthy all the time if you have faith. Well, let's read on. Because you move from this, this matter of, of the cultural conformity to uh, what I call the cons and cover-ups. Now, how do, what I mean by this. If I am the dispenser, if I'm the medium by which somehow you receive the good things that are happening in my life. You see the preacher up there. Some of you know, I know Rob shared with me one. You know preachers like this. You know preachers like this. They stand up there in their, in their overabundance of things and tell you, if you will believe like I believe, if you'll follow my example, then you too can have these things. Don't you see it's working for me? You know why it's working for them? I'm just, can I just be blunt? You know, I don't like to be blunt, but let me just... Because there are too many gullible people sitting in our pews. And we just follow it. Well, so we have all these cons that are actually happening in the church. I use the term Ponzi scheme. All these cons that are happening in the church. Some of the terminology maybe, and I wrote them down in the outline. Have a need, plant a seed. The hundredfold bandwagon or promise or blessing. And here's, here, here's, here's a, 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 a one that's used by almost every one of these guys. The point of contact pitch. Well, let me talk about what these are. Let's, 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 let's look at some of the quotes here. We start with a, a, a self-professed prophet, prophetess by the name of Wanti Money to Bynum. 
And here's what she says. She says, you've got to release something. No, I'm talking to you. Come on. Hear me tonight. You've got to release something. You've got to release it now. What is a $1,000 in exchange for eternal victory? Let me tell you. You've got to pick up the phone right now. You need to go to the phone. It's time for you to sow. Time for you to sow. To what? Have a need? Plant a seed. You plant the best seed you can, you get the best results that you have. So he said you need, she said you need, you need to go to the phone. It's time for you to sow. Because, here's the thing. Because in order for God to give, to give it to you, you've got to divinely release something. What is this? What is a divine release seed? It is a seed that I can't afford to give. So, one check away from your, your, your one check away from your breakthrough. One check away from your deliverance. Pick up the phone. It's a divine release. Now, the, the gentleman who was the father of this plant seed ministry was a man by the name of Oral Roberts. And his whole ministry was based on Oral Roberts. His whole ministry and his son who carries on his ministry now that he's passed away is the same thing. It is, you've got to plant a seed. You've got to plant a seed. And if you ever watch TBN or, you know, they always tell you, you've got to plant your seed in, you've got to plant your seed in good soil. And TBN's good soil. And, and all the ministries of TBN are good soil. And, and so you've got to, if you want, the point is, if you want something from God, you've got to take the first step. You've got to plant that seed. And it's always interesting, that seed is always what you have to plant into their ministry that you really can't afford to plant in the ministry. Because your faith is not even seen until you give more than you can afford to give. I read some things, and there's so much stuff I read where they talk about stuff like, you know what, if you only have $500 or so in your checking account, you need, to, you need to believe that there's more money in your checking account and write a check for bigger than that and know that God's going to put that in there before that check clears. Isn't that great, isn't that great financial responsibility and stewardship? That's a, well, I know it's a government, but we're not, we're not going there. <laughs> uh, Stephanie, take care of him. Okay? So, Alright, so I want you to get this. You plant a seed and you have expectation because you've had the faith to plant a seed that God is going to give you what she say here. And it's, and it's across the board, everything. He's going to give you your deliverance. He's going to give you your breakthrough. But it cannot, listen, it cannot happen unless you're willing to plant that seed. And enforcing that seed over and over again is money into their ministry. So that they can drive the big cars. So that they can have the big houses. So that they can be the example that you need to see of what a faith-filled life is all about. And unfortunately, some of the byproducts of this is that many of these leaders across the board, their lives are falling apart. Their marriages are falling apart. Their ministries are falling apart. There's not much fruit here. Plant a seed. It's a manipulation of God. It's a con game. You plant a seed for $1,000 and God will give you your breakthrough. Who said? Did God ever say that? Does the Bible teach that at all? And yet Christian people listen to this and say, oh, that, that's a good idea. We like it. We like those kind of things because as I say, they fit good on our, on our bumper sticker. Have a need, plant a seed. Have a need, plant a seed. 
It's theology that isn't theology at all. It really is, again, man-centered manipulation of God to try to get what you want from God. But you do it by requiring God to answer your request by you planting that seed. And they'll tell you. The Bible says this. It says, what a man sows, that a man will also reap. So plant a seed. Plant it in good soil. And God will multiply your increase. The second con game that, that you're looking, that, that we see in here. Um, well, let me, let me read one more on the plant a seed. A guy by the name of Mike Burdock. And he, they have him, by the way, most of these things that I'm doing right now, they're off a lot of the, uh, the praise-a-thons to raise money for, for the, for the, for the television stage. And they, and all of them, from Daystar to Trinity to some of the other ones, they have Mike Murdoch comes on there. Okay? He, 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 I don't want to talk about what he looks like. We'll just go on. But anyway. <laughs> Mike Murdoch, and here's what he says. The instruction you follow determines the future you create. Everybody got that? The instruction you follow determines the future you create. Who's creating your future? You are by what you're doing. That's what he's saying. We go on. If you never do it again, do it now. Sow a $1,000 seed. If you called in already and something is stirring you up to plant an extra $1,000 to raise a faith promise up for another level to this level, more you give, okay, Please do it now. Don't sit there with your hands closed. Do, don't sit there with your hands closed. Open your hand. When I, when I open my hand, God opens His hand. My seed talks to God. My seed is a picture of my covenant to God. My seed, uh, my God sees my seed. It, it is the way He remembers me. It's staggering. It's staggering. And yet people, gullible people, calling in, writing checks. They boast many times of the sweet little old grandmothers that watch TBN, who, on fixed income, who will write checks to these people that they can't afford while these people are sitting on their gold thrones on TV asking the grandmother to cut a check that she can't afford. Do you see anything wrong with this? And then the promise is, the bigger you see, the bigger seed you sow, the bigger your result will be. If you really have faith, you'll give what you don't have. The second one, the hundredfold blessing. Now, here's a manipulation of Scripture. What did Jesus say? He said, no one who follows me, who gives up father, mother, brother, sister, money, all these kinds of things, will not receive a hundredfold in the time to come, or in this life and in the time to come. So, the thought is that God's Word teaches a guaranteed hundredfold blessing to anyone who gives things to the ministry of God. Now again, ministry of God means to their ministry. Okay? Please don't warp the Scripture on what he, when he talks about a hundredfold. doesn't mean if you give a dollar, he's going to give you a hundred dollars. doesn't mean if you give ten dollars, he's going to give you a thousand dollars. It's not what he means at all. I mean, think about it. Put it in context of class. No one gives up father, mother, brother, sister. Who wants a hundred mothers? Mother-in-laws. How about that one? Okay? Carried across the board. He certainly is not talking about... You understand what I'm saying? What he's talking about is if 
if we do give, if God leads us to give up something, the, the ability to be used of God and the blessings of being used of God are a hundredfold greater than anything we've ever given up. In other words, you, you just can't out, outdo the blessing of God. Is what Jesus is trying to help us understand there. But the manipulation by the word of faith teachers is this. And here we have Gloria Copeland, who is married to one of the guys we'll, we've talked about before. His name is, his name is Kenneth Copeland. But Gloria Copeland, uh, she teaches too. And here's what she says. Give $10 and receive $1,000. Give $1,000 and receive $100,000. Give one house and receive 100 houses or a house worth 100 times as much. Give one airplane and receive 100 times the value of the airplane. In short, Mark 10.30 is a very good deal. Now, can I be cynical just for a moment? I always want, I always want to send these guys a letter. Hey, buddy, if you really believe the hundredfold thing, why don't you send me $100,000 tonight and you wait for the hundredfold blessing? It won't, it won't happen. Of course it won't happen. Because it, all this, I want you to see, all this is manipulation with God. Well, Robert Chilton. Robert Chilton used to be very famous for or infamous, I would say, for his show, Success in Life. And he was a very flamboyant guy, and he got caught. He got caught by prime time. Okay? And uh, he, went, he once told his people that they, they, they send in all this stuff, that, uh, that, uh, that he would lay hands on it. Now we're going to talk about this, this third con, the point of contact con. Okay? He would lay hands on it, and, and when, when he, who was a faith-filled man, would touch your your prayer cloth or your, or your request or something like that, that, that by faith God would give you what you wanted. Now, Robert Chilton at one time had a facelift. You say, well, what's so big about that? Well, when asked why he had a facelift, his response was that he spent so many hours laying on the request and stuff that the ink from the request had affected his face and caused his eyes to bag and stuff like that, so he had to get a facelift so he looked good again. When primetime caught him, after they talked to him, they went out outside his ministry, which was in Dallas, Texas at that time, and, and in the trash can, they found the envelopes, the requests, the prayer cloths, and all those things tossed aside. Of course, all the checks had been taken out of it. Because the scam is this. I'm sending you this prayer cloth, and I want you to Pray over this prayer cloth and put your request down. Send it back to me with your faith offering. And I will touch this prayer cloth. And as a point of contact, you know, something's going to happen. One guy sent out this piece of paper and said, what I want you to do is put your hand on the piece of paper, draw your hand on the piece of paper. Send it back to me and I'll put my hand in the imprint of your hand as long as you send it back with your seed faith offering. And I'll pray and God will give you whatever your request is. It's called point of contact. Now again, this is a warping of the scripture. In the book of Acts, it talks about, remember this, even the handkerchiefs of the apostles brought healing to people. And so they send out handkerchiefs as a point of contact. I want to tell you this, point of contact is a cult. It has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. 
Well, let's see what Robert Chilton has to say. He says, send me your green prayer cloth as a point of contact with you. When I touch your cloth, it will be like touching you. When you touch this cloth, it will be like taking my hand and touching me. I want the anointing that God has put on my life for miracles of finances and prosperity to come directly from my hand to yours. You can reign and live in life. You can reign in life like a king. Scams. What's almost sad to me is if some business sent you these same scams. Think about this. Well, some some people would be gullible enough to do it. But if some business sent you these scams, uh, you know what? We're starting a business, and all we need you to do is plant a seed in our business. And you plant a seed in our business. You don't have to worry about it. We don't want you to look at any papers. We don't want you. Just trust us. And we're going to guarantee that you're going to be, you'll get, you'll get results from your plant seed. Or, you know what? Give our business a hundred dollars and we guarantee you a hundredfold return. Or, you know what? We're starting a business and all we need for you to, to do is sort of come into agreement with us and we're going to send you this thing out. And all we want you to do is just sign your name to it or put your hand on it and stuff. Add to it your contribution to our business, and somehow God will bless you, or, or we guarantee you'll be blessed. Most of us say, what is this? That somehow Christian, uh, or what I would call pseudo-Christian groups, can do this, and people respond to it. Didn't Obama do that to the solar? I don't know. <laughs> okay, you two. You two. All right, we're going to the third thing. Because this carries it to the extent of what it is. What they want you to believe is that your health and your wealth, and we're talking about wealth tonight, is tied into the covenant promise of God. Which was won for you by Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. So Christ's sacrifice was not only for the redemption of your soul and the forgiveness of your sin, but also to guarantee that you would never have to live in poverty and that you would never have sickness in your body. Now, this, beca- this is what really becomes insidious because you're tying these false statements to something that's very near and dear to born-again Christians. You tell people, you can be wealthy and it's part of the covenant agreement that God has made with you. And they'll warp things, even like the Lord's Supper where Jesus will take the cup and says, this is a new covenant in my blood. And then they'll go back and say, you see what this means? This new covenant means that you can be healthy all the time, that you can be wealthy all the time, that you never have to have want in any way, shape, or form by faith. So they're tying it to the sacrifice of Christ. So, how does that work itself out? Just think about this with me for a moment. What are we tied to the sacrifice of Christ? That is the redemption of our souls and the forgiveness of our sin. A new life we have because of Christ's sacrifice upon the cross. A life no longer to walk in sin. And the result of that new life is that we can actually walk in Christ in the Holy Spirit in holiness and righteousness. And you can see the fruit of the Spirit in our life, right? So we talk about, you know, how our faith is being lived out. But that's true. That's true from the spiritual sense and also from the sense of how we live our physical life. But now if I tie in that, also in that is your wealth. Jesus died so you would never have to have poverty. Okay? So, what happens if you don't have a lot? Then there's something wrong with your faith. You've not bought into the covenant. You don't have the faith to believe what the covenant says. 
Let's look at a couple of quotes here. John Hagee. Oh, I knew I'd get personal with some of you right now. John Hagee doesn't say a lot of those other things that we've looked at, but he certainly talks about this stuff and the prosperity stuff. I know that some of you like him, but you need to listen. The anointing will do these things. John chapter, excuse me, Luke chapter 4 verse 8 says, He has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Okay. Let me, I'm gonna, let me take a side word right here. I heard this week from a preacher in this town that said, The good news, the gospel, was not that Jesus died for our sins. That's not the good news. That's not the gospel. I mentioned a little bit about this this morning. He said that the good news is the kingdom principles by which we live, not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now you have John Hagee taking a wonderful verse here. And it is a verse. It says, it says he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Okay? Um, by the way, the anointing there is Jesus, not John Hagee. Not you and me. Well, let's go on. So he goes on to say this, and this is out of the quote from, this is away from the quote of, of Luke chapter 4, verse 8. He said, What is the good news to the poor? The good news to the poor is this. Christ took our poverty at the cross and he gave you the riches of Abraham. Brother, that's enough to make a Baptist get in the aisle and start dancing. Not enough for this Baptist, I was just going to tell you. The curse of poverty has been broken at the cross. If you have the anointing, you don't have to have the curse of poverty. You've got to let that set in, guys. Where do you take this? Where do you take this when you have dear Christian brothers and sisters that are... We're going to meet some Christian brothers and sisters in a couple of weeks down in Haiti that have... They don't have not just two pennies to rub together. They don't have two sticks to rub together. Some of them are living in mud. I'm talking about mud huts. They're nothing but mud huts. And they love Jesus. And they'll tell you about their Jesus. Are they still condemned with the curse of poverty? Is somehow their faith less than our faith because we in our country have abundance? Do you see the cultural impact upon the gospel? And and now we have it taken to the nth degree. Jesus died for your poverty. So if you accept the full gospel of Jesus Christ, part of that full gospel of Jesus Christ is you don't have to be poor. And if you're still poor, it's because you have not received the full gospel of Jesus Christ yet. It's an incredible adulteration of what the gospel is. It is, it, it, it is a defilement of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. Read on. Um, Kenneth Copeland now. The man who holds to poverty rejects the establishment of the covenant. Now what covenant he's talking about? Well, just what John Hagee said. Jesus died for your poverty. And his sacrifice on the cross was so you wouldn't have to deal with, or wouldn't have to be in poverty ever. So he says, the man who holds to poverty rejects the establishment of the covenant. The man who holds to the covenant rejects poverty. Faith in the covenant pleases God. No No, no. Faith in God pleases God. Hebrews chapter 11, you know what it says. Without faith, 
it's impossible to please Him. Now, did He not just change Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6? Which says, what's it say? Those who would, who would please God must believe that He is and that He is a reward of those who diligently seek Him. What? A reward of what? Things? Money? Read that whole chapter of all those, that great hall of faith. Those people, some of them had nothing. Some of them, what's it say at the end? That they were sawn in two. They were destitute. They didn't have places to lay their head. And then it says this, and these are the people that the world was not even worthy of. It's an, it's an incredible thing. All right. Copeland goes on to say this. Poverty is an evil spirit. should be enough for you. Let's look at some biblical truth. Out of time. But we're going to look at it very quickly. 1 Timothy chapter, th- chapter 6, starting verse 3. I, and I do want to spend some time here. I won't spend a whole lot of time. I'm going to read these to you. Comment on them, then we'll move on. Because I know you know what these scriptures says. But it's real important for, for us to look at these before we leave this place here tonight. Because it's truth that we're seeking. And it's one of those times when someone moved Timothy out of my Bible. Here it is. 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting with verse 3. Here we have the scriptural, scriptural instruction on godliness and the love, love of money. Remember money, I said this morning, money's not evil. Nor does the Bible ever say that money is evil. But it clearly says that the love of money, or the, and you can put that love, love is what you desire. So let's read what he says here. Starting with verse 3. He says this, If anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicion. By the way, I've never met a word faith teacher that wasn't filled with pride. Useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth, Talk about truth again. Who suppose, look what he said, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. And look at what he says here. This is incredible. From such, withdraw yourself. You're going to have nothing to do with this kind of theology, this kind of teaching. For we brought nothing into this world, and unless you don't think that he's talking about worldly things, he is. Look what he said. Verse 6 says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these things, we shall be content. Sounds contrary to the prosperity teaching, doesn't it? But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, from which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Pretty straightforward. Let's read on. Matthew chapter 16. Go to that verse. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 26. And here Jesus is speaking. And he's going to teach us about true wealth. I love this verse. I preached this verse. Some of you were there at my father's funeral. I love this verse. It, it, it grounds me. Whether we're talking about money, possession, anything, here's what, it's, what Jesus said. For what profit is it is a man gains the whole world and loses his own soul? 
Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Well, it tells you what's precious. It tells you what's valuable. Philippians chapter 4. Very quickly. In verse 11 through 13, here's what's written for us. He said, Not that I speak in regard to need. This is Paul. I love what a, what a view of life. This is that rich Paul who bribed the officials. This is that rich Paul who had to work as a tent maker in order to eat wherever he went. Who bribed the officials. Not that I speak in regard to need, for I have learned in whatever state I'm in to be content. I know what it is to be abased, and I know what it is to abound. Everywhere, in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. And I like verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Where does he focus his life? Christ. Christ. The last verse, and we'll close after this. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 5. And here's our final instruction. By the way, that word in your outline is not covertness, covertness, it's covetness. Okay? She fixed it on that, I think. But on yours, it's, it's still wrong. Verse 5 says this. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Do you understand, child of God, what it means is this. He is your sufficiency. He is your wealth. He is your health. He's everything. And He tells us to be content with what we have. So that, so that we don't move to the place of coveting things that we don't have. And when we begin to covet, that consumes our life. That's what we live for. To get those things. And He's told us once again to look to Him. In this same wonderful book in the, in the 12th chapter... And the second verse of that 12th chapter, I didn't give this to her, but I love this verse. It says that we are to look unto Jesus, who is the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that set before him endured the cross, carried the shame for us. The focus of our life, the center of our life, needs to be Jesus. There may be some in here that, that God has said, I'm going to give you much. If he does... He intends for you, for you to use that much for His kingdom's glory. There may be some of us in here that God says, I'm, I'm not going to make you rich. I'm not going to make you poor. I'm going to put you right where you're at. But if He does that again, He intends for us to live our lives for His glory. And there may be some in the future where God says, it may be my plan and I'm going to take it all away from you. And I'm going to be glorified through that also. The point of the Christian life is that God is our God. And He is our portion. And He wants us to learn that He is everything that we need. And this wealth, gospel, little g, has nothing to do with biblical Christianity. Yet I, I'm astounded, again, of the number of books, the number of television programs, the number of ministries that are based on this very thing. And people are left wanting because things never satisfy, do they? We've been, all of us have probably been down the road. Things never satisfy. Only Jesus meets our deepest need. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads with me.
the truth. Together we seek the truth. Together we pray for the truth. Not to prove ourselves right, but that we might walk in Christ and His truth. Especially in this day. And folks, we have no other place to walk. There's no other place for us to be. So together we pray. Lord, I thank you for your love and your mercy. I thank you for your patience with each one of us. And Father, as we speak these things and we learn these things, we're reminded of these things. And, and at sometimes we're, we're sort of shocked at some of the things that are, that are being said in your name and purported as, your, as being your gospel and your truth. Father, let us stand upon your unchangeable truth. Let us keep ourselves focused upon your Son, Jesus. And whether it's in riches, or whether it's in poverty, or whether it's in neither, Father, let us keep our eyes on Jesus, who's the author and the finisher of our faith, in this day. For your glory and your honor, we pray these things. Amen. Thank you.